cliffcentral.com. Well, the Johannesburg Business School, who are well-known to the people who listen to this show, actually hosting Dr. Andrew White, who's a senior fellow in management practice at Said Business School, which is the University of Oxford's uh, what, what, do you, what do you call that relationship? It's sort of like a satellite almost. Well, it's a business school within the university. Right. Um, yeah, like, like the Joburg Business School. Exactly. Yeah, so it's part of the family um, of the university, like any other department, like medicine or history right. or anything like that. Well, um, you're here until what? Today. Today. That's yes. it. So we've caught you just before you have to go. And uh, I'm very, very pleased to have you here. You are someone who can tell us all about innovation, the management of disruptive technologies in business and particularly how companies can create uh, successful innovation and manage it. Um, you're an experienced program director, teacher and researcher at the business school and you have a coaching company. You That's also right. do a podcast. That's right. So this is a very familiar environment. Very familiar. <laughs> well, it's very nice to meet you, Andrew. And Wonderful thank you to be here, to see us. Yeah. So uh, what, what particularly brings you to South Africa aside from the relationship that you have with uh, Joburg Business School? What, what are you interested in here and what do you think we're most interested in with you? Yeah. So the primary reason for me being here was the inauguration of the new vice chancellor, Professor right. Mapidi. Um, he's a good friend of mine. I met Very him good. a few years ago when he came on a leadership program at Oxford, which I direct. Um, and when he told me that he'd been uh, promoted to vice chancellor, I thought I've got to be here um, just to celebrate with him. Um, so, but I'm also doing some work with the business school as well. I, on Friday, I, presented some research I've done on transformation um, and how do companies change themselves and governments change themselves. And this is ground zero for that stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, and this is research that we did. It was global. Um, we did a massive um, questionnaire. We did interviews. And then this afternoon, I'm going to be presenting at the business school. Um, and what I've done is I've done now 21 podcasts with senior leaders from all over the world, all really focusing on how leadership has to change to address the global challenges of the world. And I'm going to be presenting the lessons I've learned across all of those podcasts. Fantastic. So in it's a masterclass. Many, this yeah, it's a masterclass. Exactly. Um, so what I've done for each of those podcasts, I have a LinkedIn newsletter, um, which is called Leadership 2050. Um, and the podcast is called Leadership 2050 as well. So for each of the podcasts, I've actually written them up and said, what is the, what are the lessons that come from the, this leader? Superb. But what I've never done before is gone across all of them and said, what are the lessons we're learning across all of these people? And that's what I'm going to be presenting at the business school this afternoon. You must have such a wealth of really, really interesting insights. Thanks to the people that you've spoken to in your own work and, and research your own your own coaching in effect too. I mean, yeah. all of this comes together to put a really brilliant picture together of what kinds of leaders we need in business going forward. But do you think that because you do podcasting and you're a, you're an academic, do you think that the one is starting to steal some of the ground from the other? I mean, I, I know that there's no credentialism for someone who listens to a podcast. They're, they're not going to come out with a degree. Yeah. But there is tremendous value that's yep. being created in these fora. There are people who are talking to the smartest people all over the world about those things. You're no longer restricted to just this pool of expertise or this exactly. institution. Or, I mean, it's quite an interesting place and time to be. It is. And I'll give you a concrete example. About seven or eight years ago, I led a piece of work in the business called, called the CEO Report. Mm. We interviewed 150 CEOs around the world. We published a report, and you can still get access to that report on our website if you just Google Side Business School CEO Report. Um, but all those interviews were done privately. Mm. Um, um, 
I think with the podcasts, like, or reverse, all the interviews were done privately and there was some great content in them. We wrote them up, but nobody ever heard the voices of those people. They never heard the stories really. And we were only, we were limited in terms of what we could put into the public domain because right. we have to kind of put it into themes. Um, we bring out some quotes. Um, with the podcasts, you know, I'm hopefully going to be writing up the presentation into a, a bigger document, a white paper and possibly a book. Um, but if you're really interested in the podcast, I, for example, I did with someone called David Katz from Vancouver in Canada who runs something called the Plastic Bank. Okay. You can read about it, but then you can go and listen to him um, and you can listen to my interview. So I think what it's doing is it's putting research into the public domain, um, which I think is really, really interesting. And it means that actually people can listen more to what we're hearing as academics. Um, and, and, and your primary source material. Exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. I mean, it doesn't work for quantitative data, but no. for qualitative data where we're interviewing people, it does. Now, it's not always appropriate because sometimes we want confidential stuff. We work confidentially mm -hmm. with companies um and that has to be in a wrapper of confidentiality but for things like this people are very willing to talk openly and you know we, we put it into the public domain and it just gives people much more access um so whether you're a ceo or a student you really get to hear the a first-hand account of something rather than through the interpretation of the academic you still get that as well but you also get that first-hand account well where i think that interpretation from the academics is so handy is that it it helps us to identify those themes. Um, and, and it takes a trained eye to be able to pick up on those over the course of a number of interviews or someone who's doing the qualitative research or whatever it might be. But business leadership has changed enormously and continues to at a rate probably unsurpassed in all of business history, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, business leaders required to make very, very difficult decisions, turn on a dime, incorporate new technologies, change their entire folk. People talk about pivoting and all of yeah. this stuff. So what do you think the, the main themes are right now? Because there seems to me to be quite a lot of discord out there. There seem, there seem to be lots of people who have lots of different ideas of what works and what doesn't. And all too often it depends and relies quite heavily on the characters of the people involved more than any solid themes. Or am I missing something? No, I think you're right. I mean, the way I would position it is, I think there are three macro agendas which are changing the world of leadership and probably will do for the next decade or two to come. Mm. The first is everything around climate and right. whether that's um, carbon or biodiversity. I think we've lived in a period where we could use the Earth's resources in an unlimited way. And we're moving into an era where that's going to be much more constrained. So I think that's one thing that's changing. The second thing is the whole diversity and inclusion agenda. I think, you know, for me personally, organizations have been brilliant. You know, they've given me, they've trained me, they've given me a platform for things. And I think when we look at the world today and certainly historically, that was only available to a certain group of people. And I think so that's why you've got the whole but, but people also, agenda there. And as this well. is before you even get on to the third one, because both of these are very political. Yeah. Very well, political. And, yeah. and they have, they have to, to bring politics into view where for most businesses, Politics is something they'd rather have stayed out of unless they absolutely yep. had to get in. Yep. So it's kind of forcing their hand. It is. And it is. from many people's points of view, it's a distinctly left-wing political agenda. The idea yes. of diversity, inclusion, yep. uh, you know, all of this stuff is, is – this is just a, a corporate set of clothes for a yep. Marxist, <laughs> some would say. Some would say. Yep. Um, when you read some newspapers – 
Get inside a business. Well, it's like equity. Yeah. It's very, that's very left-wing language. Get inside a business. Right. And I would say that's completely not true. Look at the research evidence. The more, di- I mean, forget about the ethics of it. Just look at how to make good decisions. You need a diverse group of people. Look at organizations that are high performing. They have a diverse population of people. Look at how to build a sustainable society. You need to be educating and training and developing and promoting a diverse group of people. You know, if you want to understand your markets, you need people who come from diverse backgrounds. So so it's good business. Um, so I think I notice a difference between the conversations that are taking place in businesses, many of whom get this. And let's look at what's happening. They don't have an option in some places. They don't have an option. No. Because, Um, because it's, it's being forced top down onto them, whether they like it or not. And in some, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with anything you say. You're the expert in this, in this respect, but I, I do think that there is a distinct difference between the idea of diversity for its own sake which is often just a kind of window dressing and fronting, which in South Africa we've seen some horrible lessons learned right. over exactly this. Right. And then the end result being measurable because diversity has helped improve products, marketing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a general understanding of the, of the sociopolitical landscape, those things which are obviously valuable. Yeah, yeah. And so I think – you know, if I look at what's happening in the US at the moment, so there's a big pushback against ESG investment. I mean, they're coming from a, I would say almost a political point of view that they don't understand what's going on in, com- in many companies. Um, and so, and then if you play in the, the climate agenda, um, you, you know, the, if we don't change how we live and operate, we won't have a world for business to operate. And we're already seeing that in certain parts of the world with temperatures going up and down. And so, you know, there's a, you don't think this there's is a where I, th- you don't think there's a, a lot of alarmism there too. I mean, I see the business case. I think sustainable energy has opened up this enormous new line of potential employment uh, of, of of ways of of marketing and manufacturing and growing and 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 developing particularly in the first world in the third world that's a luxury i mean countries like south yeah. africa we're still hugely dependent on coal that's when they can keep yeah. our current power grid yeah. up and running yeah. so, <laughs> so for us for us it's a bit of a pipe dream to go down so that track i completely understand I mean, i work with global leaders I am very aware that in different parts of the world, the context is very, very different. And and, and they forced um, all this stuff down in places like uh, Sri Lanka recently. Yeah. And it had a really, really adverse reaction on the population yeah. who then decided to storm the presidential palace. Yeah. So we have to be aware of these things. But just because one thing is true, it doesn't make something else not true. Sure. Yeah, philosophically. Sure. And so but we I can't compl- go around telling – yeah. African countries, you're not allowed to use coal. Yeah. And also you've got to look at the post-colonial thing going on here. Um, you've got certain countries telling other countries how they should be op- I completely get it. You know, I work with global leaders. I have 42 global leaders in a classroom. I, these debates are familiar to me. Um, what I would also say is just because one thing is true, it doesn't make something else not true. Sure. And so we have to be able to hold the tension. I think this perhaps goes to what leaders need to be able to do. They need to be able to hold the local context and the more macro context, the global context. Um, and these things sometimes appear to be in tension. There's peer, there appear to be a paradox. Sure. I actually wrote a paper about this in Harvard Business Review um, some years ago. And good leaders find a way 
to not get caught up in the the, the left or the right. Or so, so I, they find a way to transcend these things. I did things. interrupt you, though. You yeah. said there were three, and yes. you went through two of them. The first being the environment and climate. Yeah. The second one being the ESG stuff. Yeah. E- e- what is it? E- the, ESG. ESG. Yeah. <laughs> Environmental, social, and governance. Right. Yeah. And and the governance part frightens me because it's politicians moving into the corporate sphere too. But we'll get onto that later. Yeah. The third one. The third one is technology. Um, and if you think about really the last fifty to sixty years, pretty much everything companies have developed, we've accepted. And if you now look at the challenges that social media is having in our society, I think you have to ask yourself, are we going to continue to adopt these technologies? And all it is is a question. And I guess my point is, and this is why I like what the University of Johannesburg is doing, which is putting humans at the center of technology. Um, and I think, you know, myself included, we've blindly adopted these things. Um, and then if I look at what's happening in certain parts of the world where Facebook has gone in and, you know, with the Rohingya Muslims in um, Myanmar or with suicide rates amongst mm. teenage girls yeah. in certain parts yeah. of the world. Um, um, and they are just like one of any number of example of where we've seen a, an increased polarization because of the way the algorithms work. Um, and so I think there's questions around technology for good. Um, and I'm not anti-technology, but I just think we've got to be more mindful, more thoughtful. And it's a challenge for CEOs because, you know, if we don't get this stuff right, then I think the world of passive regulation um, is probably going to change. Not dissimilar to the way it changed after the 2008 financial crisis yeah. when the banks were very unregulated. Um, and then we saw what happened with that deregulation or that lack of regulation, um, the banks could actually bankrupt us in certain parts of the world. Yeah. And therefore, the whole regulatory framework became much stronger. Um, and I think there's a challenge for certain companies to really understand the social impact of, of the technology they're putting in. And, and that's ultimately going to be good business. Yeah. Um, um, because if but, you're selling technology that causes problems and regulators start fining you and the fines they're talking about in certain parts of the world are becoming serious and material, um, then you have to take that into account. Well, I think the EU has done some pretty good work in that respect with social media companies above all. But, yeah. but I wonder if there's this tension that you, you spoke about now, if, if this is something which is insurmountable or whether it's something which will lead to tremendous development and ideas, uh, changes in culture, all the kinds of things that make a business better or worse, depending on whether it's going in this direction or the other. That tension that there is still the, the primary reason that business exists is in order to profit. Yep. You want to make money and you want to deliver a service to people that they require that they're not forced to participate in. Do you think that the free market has come under quite a lot of pressure as an idea recently? Because I, I think a lot of people trusted it to be a, a solution yeah. for all their problems. And it clearly can't be. And corporatism yeah. is a swear word in most boardrooms now. And I think politicians are extremely suspicious of big companies that have yeah. big ideas because sometimes those ideas will conflict completely with what the people of those countries want, even yeah. the employees. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. I mean, I don't myself – I think business does an enormous amount of good. 
yeah. if you think about oh, in this the, country, the absolutely. people that have been lifted out of poverty through good business, um, you know, what has been created in healthcare, what has been created, excuse me, in education. Mm-hmm. In terms of our ability to communicate, to transport, you, you know, so business has done a huge amount. I think we've got a number of issues. One is, is there a, will there continue to be a role for large global businesses? Question mark. Um, from, you know, I work across the world and what I'm seeing is countries that were quite subservient starting to stand on their own two feet. Um, and do they want you know, simply to be sold products and then money to leave the country? Or are they going to be saying, actually, we need this to operate differently? And what does that mean for the really big global companies that are out there? Question mark. Um, I think, you know, we're in the countries where climate change is really biting. Um, and there are countries where this is so, where temperatures are becoming intolerably high um, or there's floods. Um, then that starts to change, I think, the nature of the debate around, you know, how There's those an existential, it's crisis. existential yeah. threat. Um, and it's not everywhere, but it is in certain places in the world. And so I think, you know, the, the days of, let's call it the, the, the Gordon Gecko, the 1980s, the 1990s of, you know, capitalism that was deregulated, um, and that really didn't have to think about its impact and the consequence of what it was doing. I suspect those days are coming to an end. Um, I personally haven't seen a better model for, I suppose, a container for human initiative, human creativity, human entrepreneurship. Um, we all know the lessons from history of where we've tried, you know, where people have tried to do things differently and it hasn't worked well. So I think like anything in life, capitalism, capitalism is having to change. Yeah, um, and, and I think there's a, there's a vast difference and, and, and maybe it's also partly because, you know, students who you deal with on a daily yeah. basis are always going to have idealistic ways of yeah. utopian ideas of, of what system may be the solution to all their problems. But there's a massive difference between crony capitalism or corporatism and then, you know, on the other end, the stuff that the free market is meant to be, you know, yeah. an equal, honest exchange of goods for value yeah. and people treating each other with respect, whether you're the buyer or the seller. Yeah. And everybody knowing that whichever party can walk away from the deal if it doesn't suit them. I think those are still pretty good things to keep in place. And we haven't found anything better, as you rightly point out. Yeah. So what about the small businesses? Because you mentioned the big businesses. And I'm sure it's a, increasingly an area of interest for you. Um, in South Africa, big businesses are probably at their maximum capacity. And I don't know that uh, given the, the difficulties of this economy at the moment, that they're going to be the ones that provide enormous uh, numbers of, of jobs or yep. opportunities for people or even products and services for that matter. But the smaller businesses are the ones that I think people are watching with increasing interest. I would agree. Um, I think, you know, when you're running a very large business, whether you're privately held or publicly held, you've got shareholders who are expecting returns from operations. That can make it very difficult to innovate, not impossible, but it can make it difficult to go through big structural change because you've got to say to those shareholders, well, you're not going to get dividends for the next five or 10 years. Um, or you've got to play very clever games with keeping the payment of those dividends whilst deploying large amounts of capital into things which are not going to generate returns for five or 10 years. Smaller companies don't have that. 
um, to the same degree. They've got more patient shareholders. Um, they can have more of a vision within them. They can be more innovative in what they're trying to do. They don't have a legacy that they're holding on to. And so some of the people I, sp- I spoke to some people who, were um, I went through a whole breadth of people in my podcast series. So I spoke to the, the head of FTSE 100 companies in the UK, right through to people who, Toto Wolf, um, who was, who leads Mercedes Formula One. Um, but then also there were, there were two that really stood out for me. One was David Katz, who runs something called the Plastic Bank. Hmm, now we all, that? well, we all look at poverty and we all look at plastic in the oceans and we all, you know, kind of pull our hair or, no, you know, feel uncomfortable. Doesn't make anyone feel good. Doesn't make anyone no. feel good. So what, what David is an amazing leader and just, I think he f- thinks just in a different way, certainly to me, he doesn't see that as a problem. He sees that as an opportunity. So he goes to the big consumer goods companies. He gets a big chunk of money from them. He then goes to the parts of the world where there's low income in coastal communities and where that plastic is washing up. He pays those people to collect that plastic that goes into their livelihoods and into their, into the infrastructure in those communities and brings them out of poverty. The plastic then is trademarked plastic for good. If I've got that correctly is sold back to the companies. Um, and then when the plastic goes on to the product, the consumers go in there and they know they're buying plastic, but it's plastic that actually is lifting people out of poverty. So he's transformed the way, certainly for me, I think about plastic. And that company has a huge valuation. Um, and is if you follow it on LinkedIn, as I do, it's just going from strength to strength. Amazing. So to me, that's a leader that believes in capitalism, um, that's built relationships with existing companies, um, but he's reframed the debate. You know, he's come with what he calls an abundance mindset, not a limited mindset. Um, and it's created a new product. Um, it's created a high value product um, that people want to buy, but that's aligned with consumer choice. Mm. It's simultaneously taken plastic out of the ocean and lifted people out of poverty. Oh, so that's a virtuous cycle. That's what I mean. That's the type of leadership that we're seeing, I think. And that's really what I wanted to get to. It's those people who were thinking differently, but also doing differently. Um as well. I, this is, this is really, really good stuff. And I think it, it ticks a lot of the boxes that people who are young people, especially who are thinking of starting their own business, these things really matter to them. Values, doing good, making a difference. All of these things you hear from millennials and Gen Z and yep. even younger people and that, that those and are older the things people that, too. and older people, but those yeah. are the things they look to. It's not yep. just cheap products yep. anymore. How can, how, how little could I possibly pay for that thing I want? Perhaps that worked once. It's not, it's not enough anymore. Yeah. What do you have to say, especially because of your experience and the, the, the deep breadth of people you must speak to on a daily basis? What do you have to say about all these layoffs in Silicon Valley and what that tells you about how, you know, disruption and technological advancement and change and also the uh, abilities for these companies, which have been on a nonstop growth cycle for what, 20 years? In the case of Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, you see them cutting back now for the first time ever, and it's sending a lot of alarm signals downwind yeah. to companies that are looking to them as the the leaders, as the, as the yes. people on the forefront. What do, you, what do you make of that? I I, I wonder that w- what might be happening is they're just returning to the pre-COVID go- growth trajectory. But what happened in COVID was because we were all online, we saw those companies, both their valuations, but also the amount of 
excuse me, work they were doing mm. go through the roof. And therefore, they hired a lot more people. Um, and I think what might be happening is it's just coming back to a, a point of stability. Rationalization. Yeah. And also, you have to look at the US as a, an economy works in this way. It, it has much more... I don't know. It, it grows and it crashes. It grows and it crashes. And so it hires and it's, it fires. It doesn't have what exists in other countries, which is much more employment rights. And so it's, so people are more cautious about hiring, um, because it's more difficult to fire. Um, so I think time will tell on this. I, I wouldn't draw too much of a conclusion okay. about the economy. Um, I think you have to look at other factors and then you've got sync things with Twitter, which are, idiosyncratic to that company, um, which we both know what we're talking about. <laughs> and we still haven't figured out how Twitter is going to make enough money because they yeah. still haven't. Yeah. So, so I mean, Andrew, the, the, there are a number of questions that I still want to ask you, but I'm trying to just in my mind figure out which ones are the most relevant. And I think many people who listen to you here on this podcast and who will come to see your masterclass this afternoon are people who are particularly interested in how you can apply the things that you've learned and the themes that you've derived from all these conversations here. Yeah. So I have published a paper in Harvard Business Review. Um, so if you Google my name, Harvard Business Review and emotions, um, you'll find an interesting paper. And it's really about the seven steps of transformation. And it came out of some research that we did. And when you read it, it's, it's very generic. So mm -hmm. it really starts with recognize the world is in a state of disruption. What's unsustainable about your world? And that might be that our finance function is not fit for purpose because it's too manual. Mm. Equally, it could be that our whole company is running out of road um, because we are selling a certain type of product. Or it could be that we're going to be um, we're going to have a competitor that comes from a digital place. But it's recognizing that the status quo is unsustainable. That is hard for most leaders because they have to go from a position of knowing to not knowing. And most leaders have an ego and most leaders get to the position that they're in because they've either achieved or they know and they have to stand up or within a, even if it's a small group of people and saying what what we're doing is unsustainable and I don't have the answers. Hmm. Um, and that can kick off a journey. Um, and I think once they've acknowledged that the disruption is normal now. Um, and you know, we've lived through periods of certainty, certain in, certainly in certain industries. And I think they're changing. Um, so I would say that's the first point. I think then the second point is understand purpose. What, why do I exist? Whether I'm a sh small shop holder here in Johannesburg or whether I'm running a global mining company or a global retailer. And why do I exist? Um, and I don't think that matters in terms of, you know, geography or industry no. or size. Um, and I think then the challenge is once we've got to why we exist, we can then look at what we do in a different way. And we can then start to look at people like David Katz and say, well, you, you know, that seems wild, but what would that mean for us? Um, I think then the thing you have to recognize is when you go and tell workers that their world is going to change dramatically, you will throw them into an existential crisis. Mm -hmm. Do I have a job? Can I work in this company anymore? And so leading them through an emotional journey is really, really important. And that's one of the things which we saw in the research gives a far higher level of outcome of success, chance of success, um, about two and a half times increase if you really work with workers and, and lead them on an emotional journey and put humans at the center, um, as, as, as we would put it. Um, 
and and then it's really about figuring out what solutions you need to move towards. Um, and as I say, whether you're a small shop, a medium-sized company here, a large global company, mm-hmm. these are gen- that's this is a generic process that you go through. Um, so I think hopefully this isn't imposing something. It's no, really no, no, no. I think, I it's think really you, showing what the you, process looks like. I think you're you're talking like someone who actually knows this market extremely well. But then I think your your again your experience in all of this internationally has given you an ability to apply that very, very sensibly here. Yeah. Um, we do have many David Katzes riding around on our streets in Johannesburg who collect rubbish yeah. and then take it to a place where they can either recycle it, be paid for it by the kilogram or whatever it might be. And in some small way, I see these people who have no formal education, people who don't have a huge amount of opportunity. We've got a, what, 40% unemployed, youth unemployment rate at the moment, which is really bad. But there are people out there doing these things and they are thinking to, to use that hackneyed phrase outside of the box. Yeah. But South Africa is one of the places where we have lots of problems to solve. And when you have lots of problems to solve, there are lots of opportunities for people to start businesses, to make money, to deliver a contribution, to have a purpose. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and where you don't have, where you've got lots of problems to be solved, you don't have a lot of people solving those problems. So you don't have a lot of existing structures. Correct. Um, yeah. You can break rules. You can do things differently. Um, so this is this is probably an exciting place to be for anyone who's, <laughs> yes. who's looking. Yes. Despite uh, difficult economic conditions all over the world, I think we have our own challenges here. But certainly I think for many young people who are trying to do things differently, there is an opportunity here to explore those ways of doing things differently at a quite low cost for failure. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, trying this in London or New York or yeah. Hong Kong or Singapore. Yeah. Um, Can I add one thing in that yes. came through in all the podcasts that I did? Um, and yes, all these organizations needed to make money. There was a financial thing in there, but all of these otherwise leaders. Otherwise they're NGOs. They're not other, otherwise, yeah. But they also cared about something when they looked at the world. And when they looked at the world, like David Katz did, and it was poverty and plastic, mm. that gives a reason for being. It gives a, a purpose. It gives a an energy, a motivation. It helps you attract people, whether they are customers or whether they are employees. Yep. Um, and I think that starts to – it doesn't change the fundamentals of capitalism, but it puts a, a layer onto it that makes capitalism different. And when that's authentic, when that goes down into the business model, when it's not just, you know, window dressing. Sure. Um, um, and when it's generating returns to shareholders, which it should do. Um, then I think, I don't know whether you're familiar with the phrase, we're really cooking on gas. You know, there's something, <laughs> you know, there's something yeah, yeah. really, really, re- really interesting happening there. Well, I'm very pleased you're in, in Johannesburg. I'm, I'm delighted that you could be here for the Johannesburg Business School, not just to see your friend, yes. made vice chancellor, but yes. also to share your expertise with us. And we're, we're obviously very, very happy that you're doing this masterclass and that you found the time to come and talk to me because, uh, this may reach a bunch of people who won't be at your masterclass today, but who would nonetheless love to hear from you. Where can we find the rest of your stuff? So, um, I've got two or three papers in Harvard Business Review. Right. So if you Google my Harvard, name, Harvard Business Review is one. With, with the other one Andrew is follow, follow me on LinkedIn. 
Um, and the easiest way to do that is Andrew White Leadership 2050. Fantastic. Um, if you put LinkedIn there, you'll find my LinkedIn newsletter. That goes out every two weeks and there's about 40 episodes in there. But there's also the podcast as well, Leadership 2050, which is on Apple, Spotify and all the other platforms. And on an entirely unrelated note, you also practice meditation. That's right. And you think that, that this could be a tool to help other people in business? I do. How's it helped you? And, and tell me a little bit about that. So... I mean, meditation at one level is a very simple practice. Um, many people will have experienced being caught up in thoughts and caught up in emotions. And sometimes that can just keep us awake at four o'clock in the oh, morning. Are, are you kidding with these? Oh, with, with, with these phones as well. Constantly yeah. distracted. And right? what meditation does is kind of say, I am able to think, but I'm also able to ob observe my thoughts. I'm able to feel, but I'm also able to observe my feelings. Therefore, I am not totally my thoughts and I'm not totally my feelings. And at the very heart of it is just developing that muscle that says when I'm caught up in something, rather than acting that out, I return to that sense of what we might call deeper presence. Um, and often we use techniques such as focusing on the breath. The breath is always there. If we're not breathing, we're not alive. Sure. Um, so whatever circumstance you're in, you've got the breath as an anchor. Other people use music or um, nature or a candle. Um, and so what I found is with me, it's reduced a lot of the mental noise. Um, it's enabled me to manage my emotional state. I'm more intentional in how I live. Um, and that obviously has a, a consequence for other people around me and for the work I do. Oh, that's terrific. I mean, there's another tool to add to the toolkit. There is and something I think many business leaders could probably do. Well, well particularly business leaders, because yeah. if you think of business leaders, everybody wants something from them. You know, mm -hmm. the, the more senior you are, the more pressures yep. are coming your way, the more you've got two or three phones going off, you've got schedules, meetings. Oh. And, you know, I write about this. At the end of the day, you get home at seven, eight o'clock, you're wired with energy. Um, too often it's easy to reach for alcohol or the TV to numb that. Um, you go to bed at 10, 11 o'clock and you're awake at three because the mind is still processing. Um, and that's where we really can see this impact. And then if you make decisions from that point, you're not going to be making good decisions because you're not at your best. So this, this is really where it starts to feed in, particularly for, for leaders, um, who are under those types of it's pressures and terrific. stresses. I, I love it. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Wonderful. It's great to be here. here we are. Dr. Andrew White. Cliffcentral.com.